Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of The Playful Musician. This week's guest is Grammy-nominated jazz singer Sarah Gazarek. Sarah has been one of the leading lights of a very impressive generation of jazz vocalists since her brilliant debut at the tender age of 20. She has five acclaimed albums, an ardent fan base, enthusiastic reviews, and a teaching position at the University of Southern California. She has collaborated with jazz luminaries such as Kurt Elling, Fred Hirsch, Billy Childs, and Larry Goldings. In our conversation, she shares about the Grammy nomination process and what it was like to be at that event. She talks about her latest Grammy-nominated album, Thirsty Ghost. She talks about her new project, Sage, with three other fantastic female vocalists. And she shares a lot about the creative process, writing, producing, and performing. Before we start the conversation, I want to share just a little bit of one of the tracks off of her album, The Thirsty Ghost. Here's I'm Not the Only One. You've done, and 
Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. How are how are things in Los Angeles these days? Um, generally, things in Los Angeles, I think, are probably pretty similar to everywhere else in the world, mm. except we just don't have weather here. So that's the main difference is that it's just like consistently 65 mm. to 75 on any given day. We had rain. I was proud. Oh, right. I was proud of Los Angeles. <laughs> we had rain. Um, but yeah, just, you know, I mean, I think most musicians are taking the stay-at-home order thing really seriously because we just want to get out and perform yeah. as soon as possible. And so I really haven't been out much, mm-hmm. just kind of locked in front of my computer screen teaching and collaborating long distance and yeah. um, every once in a while playing like, you know, games with family members via Zoom sure. or something. Um, but I think, you know, trying to be as responsible as possible in mm. the hopes that my efforts will contribute to the, to the way that I hope everybody else is existing in the hopes that we can kind of get through this together if we all are responsible. Right. Um, and fortunately, you know, have power, have heat, um, mm, have a yeah. partner that I like, have a dog that I like, um, have musical collaborators that I like. And <clears throat> it's taken... Um, a while, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this, but it's taken a while to feel any inkling of productivity. Uh, but, but it's been okay. You know, it's, it's been okay. There have been ups and downs, but, um, on this day at this hour, uh, it's, it's okay. It's good. It's okay. (laughs) Where you live, are you able to get outside, get outdoors and like do outdoor things? Yeah. Yeah, we are. My, um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and, you know, went camping mm-hmm. and yeah, spent as much time outside as possible as a child and a teenager. And so makes sense that I married a landscape architect who specializes in native plants, who like, oh. whose happy place is just being outside. And so we go on hikes as much as possible and to visit, um, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't say the beach, but just like anything outside as much mm-hmm. as we can. Yeah. Uh, Cause it is the one like safe, beautiful experience that, that Los Angeles year round has to offer. So we do have sure. the opportunity to do that. So we go out, we have, we have an Australian shepherd. He's a year old. And so oh, a puppy. He, yeah. And so he has to go out like, and spend quite a bit of time outside mm. doing exciting, fun, energetic things for at least mm. an hour every day. So that keeps us moving and keeps us outside. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, we, yeah, we spend, we spend a good amount of time outside. It's important that's, to us. Yeah. I find that that's been my saving grace. Is yeah. being, I also in the Pacific Northwest. So where are you, uh, Steve? I'm in, I'm in Ashland, Oregon. Oh, beautiful. Ashland's I don't know if you've great. ever been there, but, um, I haven't stopped for a lengthy period of time, but I've driven through for sure. Yeah. And we we're fortunate we're between two mountain ranges and it's, it's super, I can go hiking out my back door. So I'm very what are fortunate. the mountain ranges? Uh, the Siskiyou mountain range and the Cascade mountain range. Okay. I know the so, Cascades well, but I yeah. don't know the Siskiyou mountain range. Yeah. So this is, we're in the middle of February and I, I have to bring up the fact that we, we lost another, of our icons this week, uh, Chick Corea, and um, 
I was just curious if you'd ever met him or had any interaction with Chick Corea or, or I'm sure he was an influence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think this, it's just, this is just a genre that celebrates people who have continued to devote themselves and their lives to their craft. And so we don't, I don't think that there's quite the same sensationalization. Is that a word? It is now. Mm -hmm. um, with youth and like with prodigy as much as like fine aged wine, especially with artists who continue to push themselves and continue to grow. And um, I think that the, the devastating side effect of that is that we constantly are mourning the loss of, of living legends because there are people who have been contributing to this art form since the twenties and continue to, contribute to the art form. So every time we lose someone, it's sort of like mourning the loss of a, of a dear friend and mentor, whether or not you have had the opportunity to work with this person. Um, I remember my freshman year of college, uh, I was in a combo, like most jazz school students are, I was assigned a combo. And the pianist at the time said, we should do this song. It was written by a Chikoria um, <clears throat> and I didn't know who Chick Corea was and I listened to it and I was just so floored by how joyful it sounded and delighted at how easy it was mm. and sat down to learn the song and was just gutted that it was not easy at all, not even close to easy. He just made it sound easy. And mm. so it kicked my butt then and, and his music continues to kick my butt. Um, anytime I, I learn and sing any of his compositions, they're just so joyful and beautiful and have this the gift of sounding easy, but not taking for granted the, the joy of hard work and the reward of hard work. Mm. Um, and I never had the opportunity to interact with Chick one-on-one, -on -one, but last year, this is something that isn't made public because I, I don't tend to talk about this stuff. Um, but I was performing at the official Grammy after party, which was a a real honor last year to mm. have the opportunity to attend the Grammys as a nominee. And then afterwards they have two main rooms for all of the nominees. One is like the big one where I think like Gloria Gaynor and a couple other really big contemporary artists that I don't know were performing. Uh, and then they have the smaller room, which is the jazz room. And my band was asked to be the headliners in the small jazz room. Mm. And so, you know, it, it, you never know who will go to those things because most major labels have their own party or like John Legend has a party that like the really famous people are invited to or Quincy Jones has a party or Sony Music has a party. Um, but I remember after the first set, my drummer came up and was like, what did it feel like to be singing in front of Ch Chick Corea? And I was like, what? excuse me, what? <laughs> He was like, yeah, he was just standing, like like literally standing because it, there, there were tables, but like, you know, you mm. can't get a table. So yeah. he was standing there like three feet from the stage, I guess, for like three songs, just like standing there looking and watching. And um, I didn't have the chance to meet him that night because it was a whirlwind, but I did yeah. send him an email. Um, and I think most young people sort of have celebrated Chick Corea as, as one of one in a long tradition that isn't as common these days of, of artists who are really hungry to interact with up and coming uh, younger people. 
Mm. Um, and so I, I, he didn't write me back. I don't even actually, I can't, I can't confirm that the email address was correct. Someone gave it to me. Um, it's entirely possible that it wasn't the correct email address. Um, but I have seen people who have posted letters that he'd written, he'd written back or emails mm. that he'd written back or conversations that they'd had with him that were just so beautiful and supportive and, um, it's inspiring to realize that that is an option, you know, that it is possible yeah. to recognize the weight of your influence and to see that that could be a gift um, to take the time out to acknowledge another young person. And if you are inclined to help them continue on their path. Right. Do you, do you remember which song it was that you guys did in the combo? I remember that it was a couple songs that I think I was glad that he had seen. Like, I think we did Never Will I Marry from Thirsty mm. Ghost, which is kind of like a, yeah, as like a fun kind of um, party. It's like straight and has like some different South American grooves. Mm -hmm. And then I believe when I fall in love with you, it will be forever. And Stevie Wonder Tune similarly goes back and forth between a couple of different grooves. And I remember thinking that I was glad that he had seen those two songs. So it wasn't one of those things where you're like, oh, I wish I'd done these songs or, oh, right. I wish I hadn't done those songs. Um, I think we were glad that he had seen some of the songs that he did see. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, the Grammys, I wanted to talk about that. Um, so you've been nominated essentially three times because you have a nomination right now with your group, uh, Sage. Which is super exciting. A-class pronunciation, Steve. <laughs> You're in a rare group. <laughs> yeah, well, I try to do as much research as possible. And I've, I need to ask you, because I've heard, I need to ask you to pronounce your last name, because um, <laughs> I've heard it Gazarik and Gazarik, and I think it's Gazarik, but yeah, I... It's okay. Gazarik. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Well, there, are, like, there are some videos out there of people introducing me and they're people who I know and love and who know and love me and they know how to pronounce my last name, but like that one flub and then it's just like, you know, the most watched YouTube video of all time. Right. So what, uh, just side note, it, what, yeah. what, where, what is that nationality? Gazarek? It's Czech. Okay. So my great grandmother, great, great, great grandmother, uh, emigrated alone at 15 to Ellis Holy Island. Holy cow. I know. And she was 15. Um, and I think from what I've heard is that her last name was Gazarkova and that they knocked off the OVA. Cause I guess, and okay. I could be wrong, but my understanding, what I've been told is that the OVA is sort of like the daughter of. Sure. Gazarek. And so. Have you ever been? I've not been. Okay. I would love to go. I've cool. not been. But uh, I've been uh, told my eyebrows and my cheekbones are very Czech. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I'm just curious, how does one get nominated? Like, what's that? I've heard various stories that it's very like, uh, like you have to be super strategic and it's very political and whatnot. I'm like, I'm just curious, like, what is there? A, is there a formal submission process? Like, how does it work to be nominated for a Grammy? Yeah, it's interesting because I think that there is this narrative out there that it is really, um, like the information is not readily available and like it's secretive and it's kind of like a, a popularity contest and you can kind of like pay for play. Um, and the good news is for those who 
are really actually curious about doing the research, the information is like just on the Grammy website. <laughs> um, but I am happy to break it down because because it is the question that I get asked often. And essentially, um, in order to be a member of the Recording Academy, and I think they have like 20,000 members or something, 15,000 to 20,000 members, mm. um, you have to sort of prove that you are a contributing member of the music industry. Um, and then to be a voting member, I think you have to prove that you are an active contributing member um, and you have to apply and you have to submit um, like different things that you've done. If it's articles that you've been mentioned in mm. or CDs that you've released or your website or anything that just kind of says I like I'm I'm real and I'm not like someone's cousin Biff who was going to vote for them, right? They do really have a, a deep respect for the process and wow. all, all that to say. And yeah. I do actually have friends who have been um, like challenged as current members mm. and have had to prove again and again. And then even after the fact, like haven't released anything in a while. And so the Academy says like, well, you know, come back and let us know when you do because they're pretty serious about making sure that it's someone who actually is contributing mm. in a... Uh, in an active way. Um, so, and then when you have something that you want to submit, there is a formal process for the submission. These days, everything is digital. And so you essentially go, uh, you have to be a member to submit and a member can submit on behalf of someone else. So the first time I submitted for consideration and didn't receive a nomination, my friend helped me uh, submit for your consideration. And that um, was for the duo record that I did with Josh Nelson. And I didn't know <clears throat> how the Grammy thing worked. And so I just kind of like submitted it and, and you know, submitted it for a few different categories and didn't, you know, just ha didn't have a whole lot of awareness of, of how things functioned. Mm. Um, and then came to realize that uh, essentially the way that it works is that there there's a, a panel of people who... Um, listen and make sure that everything's submitted into the correct category. And if it's not, then they'll move it. Um, and then that category has the opportunity to say, this isn't in the right category either. And they can come back and say, like, I think it is in your category. And so, again, they take it really seriously to make sure mm. that, you know, a record label isn't just submitting in vocal jazz because they think it has a better chance of winning there. You know, right. like they do have specialists who can say, like, this isn't actually technically vocal jazz based on the verbiage that is on the website that says this is how we qualify something as one or the other. Right. And then once it's been, once it's, it's, it's uh, been accepted, nothing is rejected. Any, like I, I could be a 14 year old in my basement and have something on Spotify that does actually meet the qualifications for a specific category. Um, and it's accepted. It doesn't have to be by someone who has sold three records, right? It just sure. has to be somewhere online for yeah. consideration. And then the Academy members, vote on the first round. And so it, the political side of it is actually making sure that people know that you have a project out and that you can say like, please consider it, right. you know? Um, and I don't think, I wouldn't say that that's political as much as just recognizing that it's important to make sure that people know that you have a record up for consideration because there are thousands of albums that are up for consideration. So anytime someone sends me an email that's like for your consideration, that's all it is. I'm not saying like, oh, that person's my friend and I'm voting for them. I'm saying like, oh, good to know. Now I have mm -hmm. another one that I need to listen to. Right. Um, and I think most Academy members take that charge pretty seriously. Yeah. And 
um, will listen to it. And then that's the same process for nominations. Um, and so, so I think it depends on the category, but I think the way that it works is that it's either that you just got the most nominations and those top five people got the most nominations or the most votes for consideration. But then there are like craft categories where someone it's it like really can't be a popularity contest. It has to be like, I think some of the more like specialty categories like composition and jazz and some of the ones that are more niche, it is less of a popularity contest and more like they do have a panel that, that will sort of like listen to the top 40 of them that, that like received the top votes and then sort of like weigh their, their thoughts as well. And then it's a combination of those things, I think. Um, but again, it's 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 very um, transparent, and mm-hmm. it's really um, there's there's quite a bit of integrity involved, and they they work really really hard at the academy to make sure that um, that's the case, and not yeah um, you know people advocating for votes for their client that they represent, or advocating for trading yeah. votes for you know like it 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 really is meant to be a really um, precious process. And so that's why I feel, and most people who receive nominations feel like it's a, a an honor in itself, you know, yeah. just to have the nomination. It really is because it's not just a panel of people saying like, well, this person was on the radio a lot. It's like, no, your peers, people who they really vet to make sure that, that they're aware of what's happening, um, have decided that after listening to all of the options or as many of the options as they can, um, that they chose you. Yeah. Yeah. And and how did it feel when oh that's so cute. That's bad. How did how did it feel when uh when you heard that your record was that you had two nominations last year? So last year um I think he knows that my husband's coming home. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> so last year was a was um my first nomination, I received a nomination for my record Thirsty Ghost in the yep. Best Jazz Vocal Album category. And then a, a, an arrangement on that album that had been arranged by Jeff Keezer also right. was nominated That's for Best right. Arrangement. Yeah. yeah. So I'm affiliated <laughs> via that record with right. two, two nominations and received one myself. Yeah. Um, but that record was self-produced and self-released. Yeah. So as someone who felt like a bit of an outsider and and really pushed myself to to do as much with that record as possible and to get it in front of as many eyes as possible and to submit it for consideration. Um, After receiving no's from different labels that we had sent it to and no's from different booking agents and all these things that were like, you know, keep going, but not for me. Um, Mm. It was really an honor of a lifetime to Mm. see a record that wasn't affiliated with Muscle receive sort of the highest honor in the music industry. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, that album was nominated against some of like jazz royalty. And um, so I really, so I really do feel as though it was an honor by itself to be nominated and to have the opportunity to go to the Grammys and to go to, yeah. you know, the nominee party and to attend these different events for the very first time with a project that I, saw from conception to finale um, all by myself, essentially, you know, with the help of, of some incredible collaborators and very special friends, but um, without the help of, of industry muscle, essentially. Yeah. What was it like attending? Did you like, 
did you did did like some fashion designer get, make you a dress <laughs> and like what was that whole that must be I would imagine that's a very surreal experience in a, in a certain mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fortunately, I had been to the after party the year before, so I sort of knew how chaotic and um, indulgent everything felt. Like, it wasn't new to me that, you know, it really does feel like another world. Yeah. You know, there's all, like, the huge chandeliers and the dancing people on giant platforms and, you know, custom desserts and everyone in these incredible gowns and... um but it was, I just, I've never felt more proud, mm. to be honest. Like that was real. that's the best way to say it is that like to go, to, to experience something that I never imagined as a young person that I would have the opportunity to experience and to see it firsthand and to, to take it all in and recognize that it's as extravagant and beautiful as you anticipate it to be. And as much of an honor as you anticipate it to be, I just pushed myself to be as present as possible through it all. I didn't have a designer. Essentially, if you have a a big designer design your gown, you're like a Nicki Minaj or or a Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) And even if you are a Bjork, you're more than not either having an independent designer who's not super well-known or using something that is already in the collection. Yeah. So it's rare that a Versace would be like, I'll design something for you. (laughs) Um, So for me, there was a design house that pairs artists with already designed outfits. And because I was a uh, was not a shoe-in and was not in a category that's announced on television, um, my, my dresses were not, I mean, I loved them, but they mm-hmm. were not like couture, yeah. can't be found anywhere. Like I could go online and buy the dresses that I wore right. for like 1500 bucks, you know, so I would <laughs> never buy them in real life, but, um, but not for, you know, Tens of thousands of dollars. So like sure. some of the other celebrity gowns. Yeah. Yeah. Did you uh did you have meet anybody like super cool that you were like, oh my God, this I'm I'm talking to this person. Well, <laughs> the way that the red carpet works is that they interview everyone if they think there's a chance you might win. And I had a great publicist who was like, This is the next big thing in jazz. You want to talk to her, she's probably gonna win. And so I ended up talking to like you know, all of the hosts that you see on the red carpet and, mm. um, you know, like e, e Entertainment yeah. Network, Bravo, NBC, ABC, like all the people. It didn't win, so who knows what happened <laughs> to those interviews. Um, but in terms of famous people, no. Yeah. Um, because I was performing at the after party, so I couldn't talk to anyone. Yeah. Um, and then at the actual Grammy, like the big Grammys, I only got to go to 15 or 20 minutes of it because we were sound checking for the after party. So I didn't, and, and, you know, I wasn't on the floor because I wasn't part of that mm. ceremony. Yeah. So I got to see all of those performances firsthand. Um, and for anyone who has an opportunity to go to the Grammys, I would, I would take it. It's actually a really incredible experience to see all of these um, artists performing and, and kind of like collaborating and and it Mm. feels like a huge production because it is. Right. Um, but it's like all the people in the music industry doing the thing that they do best and like 40 of them, you know? Right. Yeah. So it was fun. We had a good, we had a really, really good time. That was one of my favorite nights that I've had in a long time. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, was there a, uh, how do I put this? Was there a ripple effect from that? Like, what did you see 
any long-term like uptick in like social media or mm. like record sale did it translate into anything afterwards for you as a as an artist it's hard to know it's really really hard to know because the pandemic hit a month after the grammys and lockdown happened a month after the grammys and yeah. so like every artist i had an entire year of touring booked that was canceled or postponed mm. um and no one is booking right now yeah and so whether there would have been an uptick it's hard to say my guess is that now I have just moved into the echelon of singers who are who can say that they're Grammy nominated, but it's not off of the momentum of that nomination. Yeah. Um, it is entirely possible that having had that nomination and then having performed at the after party, that more members of the Academy know who I am, which is in the long run, not a bad thing. Right. <laughs> Not a bad thing when someone sees a name and says, oh, that's up for consideration. I know that person. I should give it a listen instead mm. of like, I don't know who that is. Let's keep moving. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I don't know. I think that every artist is just in this holding pattern and we don't know. Yeah, sure. It's hard. To, it's hard to gauge. Yeah. How did you celebrate? <laughs> I mean, I, other than going to the award show itself, did you and your husband do anything or did you yourself do something to celebrate that massive the nomination itself yeah the nomination itself um yeah so that morning when so essentially what happens is um you can either watch them announce it on television or they upload things in real time to or update their website and when they announce it east coast time you wake up and they've already announced it because it's 6 a.m. there, or yeah. here, but 9 a.m. there. Yeah. And so last year, I remember my husband and I turned off our phones because you either I knew I either would wake up to a flurry of text messages or I wouldn't. Yeah. <clears throat> and so we turned our phones off. We got coffee. We let the dog out. And the plan was to open the computer and load the website and figure out what happened. But I mm -hmm. opened the computer and saw, like, as soon as the internet loaded, like, 180 text messages. And I was like, oh my God, so we went uh, to the website and saw that Thirsty Ghost had been nominated and then, and screamed and, you know, the yeah. dog at the time was a puppy. And so he was like, what's going on? And we both started to cry and, you know, we're just freaking out again because this was a self-produced, self-released yeah. record that by all means, you know, when, when you look at the stereotype of what does get nominated just was not, didn't have a chance. Yeah. Um, and then... For those that don't know, I teach on faculty at the University of Southern California, and mm -hmm. I was teaching that day. So I went in, and the head of the program is married to a person who works behind the scenes with the Grammys. So she knew. And so she um, she was like, I told, you know, the Trojan Daily News they're going to be coming to interview you. And I was like, this is, is this my life? Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. <laughs> and then I went into my classroom, and my students were like unfazed utterly unfazed i think like the news crew came in and like wanted to film and then they left and i think my students were like oh that's cool and then you know it was like back to me oh man <laughs> so and and ultimately that's kind of the experience you know is that yeah. it's this huge huge um 
joy and event and and monumental occasion in your life, but it's mm. like a moment of delight for those who know you. Like, yeah. oh wow, oh my god, that's huge. Um, so okay, so guess what happened to me? You right, know? exactly. And so that was it. That was kind of it. So my husband and I went out to dinner one night, and and he, you know, I like, told the waiter, uh-huh. and every once in a while I would like tell people, like, yeah, my wife is Grammy nominated. Um, yeah. But I had, I have one friend, one of the members of of Sage, who, from in the two months that I was just nominated and potentially winning, um, always would say like, "Hello, Grammy nominated Sarah Kasarik," which is which is really fun because you sort of feel like, I don't know, or maybe this is just me that I didn't want to let it get to my head or like get an ego about it or uh, didn't want to get my hopes up. And so almost to some degree, there's like this aspect of culture that makes you want to downplay it a little Mm. bit, that it is a a huge, exciting experience. And so it was was a necessary reminder that it's okay to be excited and it's okay to process it as a gift and as something to celebrate and that doesn't mean that you're a jerk. <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's, I'm finding more and more that it's important to celebrate uh, as often as possible. Your, your, whatever accomplishment it is. Yeah. So that's Why cool. Why not? Yeah. Here's another cut from Thirsty Ghosts. This is Never Will I Marry. was your first time producing uh how how was that for you how was it putting on the producer hat and how was that different from your other experiences having having a producer Um, well yeah i've always had a producer and essentially my my dog named bear in the background um my producers have always bear come here you probably see something over there um my producers have That's always fine. been instrumentalists who know my music and kind of can hear 
as external ears in the studio what is missing or what needs to happen or what could happen for the next take. And the music of Thirsty Ghost was so personal to me that I really trusted that I either could hire a band that knew what they needed to do or wanted to do or could reflect in that moment that this was the best take or wasn't the best take and that I could, you know, like I, this is my music and I should, I should Mm -hmm. know that as well. Um, I think what I miss, uh, judged is how challenging it is to have that perspective and also to have the, mental capacity in the moment to communicate what you need to other musicians in a way that doesn't create a bad vibe in the studio and can actually like uplift and and inspire what it is that needs to happen and also keep an eye on the timing and also know when to let go and to move on and when it's time for lunch and who wants what lunch order. So I feel like I underestimated the role of a producer when I did, when I made Thirsty Ghost and ended up just, the the difference was that I, I had to spend more money to go back in and redo my vocals. So I was producer Mm. in the studio for the band, um, and did scratch vocals with them and then ended up having to pay for two extra studio days to go back in and put myself in the mental space where, how can I tap into something bigger than myself and bigger than figuring out lunch orders to transcend and communicate these concepts that I know I want to communicate that you just can't when you when you're the sort of like house marm to the project in the moment. Yeah. Um, I think I do have a brain for those kinds of things and I think I did as well as could have yeah. been done. But even afterwards, you know, like knowing what the mix needs, knowing what song order, knowing what font to use on the album cover, everything was like, it was me, you know, and there wasn't, I couldn't, Mm-hmm. I couldn't have someone tell me what to do and then know better that like, no, no, that actually isn't what I want. I actually had to just make the decision and like, like even naming the record, it was either going to be Thirsty Ghost or, oh, what was it? Um, Thirsty Ghost. Yeah. It's like, they're both lyrics from um, Distant Storm. So. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm blanking. This is good information, though. <laughs> Fever Sky. Yeah. Fever Sky Fever or sky. Thirsty Ooh. Ghost. And Fever Sky, we decided, or I decided, feels like a punctuation of, like, a statement, you know? And, like, it's just, like, it's Fever mm-hmm. Sky. And it's obvious yeah. kind of what that means. Thirsty Ghost is, like, question mark. Like, what? What is a Thirsty Ghost? Mm-hmm. Huh? Which felt like a right. <laughs> the, the direction to go, you know, that it maybe would get you thinking. Yeah. Um, Fever Sky is evocative, but Thirsty yeah. Ghost feels like inquisitive almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was listening to, I mean, my my favorite track is I'm Not the Only One. Um, there's that is the groove is just like, oh my gosh, it's indelible. It's like, oh. Thank you. I love it. And the lyric is so like, yeah, it cuts like a knife. Yeah, I remember when I heard, that's a Sam Smith tune for those that know his music. He's like a pop darling from England. And um, Mm. I was, you know, for those who who have listened to Thirsty Ghost, it's obvious that a theme of infidelity is sort of woven through that album. And I remember hearing that song when I was dealing with 
my own experience with infidelity. And um, that was ultimately why I wanted to do that song. Um, but, you know, I mean, the thing that I say to a lot of, a lot of sort of the gatekeepers of the jazz community is that jazz standards ultimately are standards because they speak to human truths that we all can identify with. And through the years, you know, I mean, like T for Two was written ages mm -hmm. ago, but it's something that we all can still totally identify with. Um, and so as long as <clears throat> the lyrics and the melody are compelling enough to speak to that concept, like why shy away from it? You know, Dolly Parton is one of the right. greatest songwriters to have ever existed on the level of oh, a George yeah. Gershwin. So, so why not do a Dolly Parton song? Because it doesn't go in, yeah. like her version, her specific version doesn't fit in the jazz iTunes category. Like, okay, we should still do it. It's still an incredible song that a lot of people identify with. And so if there's a way to breathe life into it in the yeah. same way that we're trying to breathe life into Never Will I Marry, um, that doesn't that doesn't feel like a, a hard line in the sand for me ever. Yeah. I I love that about you. And I, um, I think my first exposure to you was the live at the bakery oh. album. Mm -hmm. And that was, I did a, I hosted a jazz radio show up here for about four years. And, uh, one of the benefits of doing that is you get, you know, like every week there's like, just like 20 yep. new CDs that mm -hmm. you look at. And um, I learned, what 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 label was that one? Native on? Language. Native Language. Uh, so I would like look at different, la certain labels always caught my attention because they always had really good artists. And, and um, but yeah, I remember that, that led me to uh, more of your albums. And then you, you'd covered a Billy Joel mm song which also i think he's an amazing mm -hmm. songwriter and i think you should do his lullaby one of these days oh cool okay i don't know that one i'll look into it yeah it's off of um i think it's off of the bridge he wrote it for his daughter it's it's like it's a really it's a gorgeous song um awesome. yeah anyway side note there um so you had success early in your career like really early and um i'm curious how was that how was how did you navigate that uh being so young and did did you have any really good mentors and support to kind of keep you grounded and keep you healthy yes i did um yeah so Essentially, I went to jazz school. I fell in love with jazz, went to jazz school for college and applied for a ton of scholarships and awards more than anything to just make sure I didn't graduate with a ton of debt. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I did come into jazz school with like a pretty good understanding of my instrument and how I felt about my instrument and how to use mm -hmm. it in a way that felt like it resonated with me and a really deep understanding of, of swing feel. Those are the two things that I graduated with, um, from high school. And mm -hmm. then jazz school was like very hard for me because I didn't know a whole lot about music theory and, you know, actual like concepts like jazz, academic jazz concepts. And, um, there were a few mentors of mine that, that were, were really, impactful 
um, some after the fact, uh, but some while I was in school. Um, and now that, you know, I'm 38 and I teach at USC and I've taught there for 10 years now. And so I, I do have some students who I recognize the role of mentor and how important it is and, and can look back and realize that I have a handful of people who like full stop changed my life. And a few people who, for better or for worse, and, and without intending to, passed on their own value system and their own um, demons, mm. you know? And so um, I had one mentor who uh, deals with some pretty strong insecurities and um, when I was auditioning for record labels, wasn't particularly nice about it. Mm. And had strong feelings about young people in jazz and didn't think that there was a place for young people in jazz. And um, because I really loved this person and valued their perspective, I took that on. And so there was a period of time mm. where I was auditioning for Blue Note and Verve and Sony and felt like nervous and scared that I didn't deserve it and that I didn't mm. belong and that I was going to be chewed up and spit out Um by the machine and that the world wasn't going to love me because I wasn't good enough yet. Hmm. And I remember specifically that John Clayton sat me down and said, um, you know, you, there are people in the world who are worthy of what you're doing, but so are you, <laughs> you know, and, and you are worthy and you belong here. Like you belong where you are in this moment. And when Sony asks you if you want to make a record, you get ready, you know? And the only way that you could be eaten up and spit out is if you check out in the process and allow them to make all of the decisions. Um, and then you stop doing your homework. And so yeah. as long as you have an, an idea of who you are and what you want, and then you continue to grow, you will always have a place in this genre. And that was so important for me to hear at that age. Um, yeah. because I did feel like having had that one mentor who, who had that really strong perspective that young people didn't have a voice and shouldn't be a part of the process because if young people come around, everything will be taken by them and therefore the resources won't be available to everyone else, which is just un untrue. <laughs> it's just not right. true. You know, there are 12 Jazz Times magazine covers a year, not one, you know, <laughs> right. um, and if anything, you know, now that I'm a teacher, I recognize even more so how misguided that perspective is. You know, mm -hmm. like I, I feel so much joy for my students when I see them succeed. There's not even an inkling of I wish I had that ever, mm -hmm. you know, because I know that whether or not I have something is 100% up to me, mm -hmm. you know, or it's just not meant for me or it's not the yeah. right time, or it's not the right person in control of making that decision. Um, so I'm very grateful for John for saying that. The other thing that he said early on was that the opinions of people outside of my inner circle essentially are just that, you know, and that I can have a review in the Winnipeg Free Press saying that the album is a five-star tour de force and this person is the next most important 
artist to have arrived in the century. Um, and all that is is an opinion. Yeah. You know, and a great soundbite for a bio and for a website and its currency that a lot of people subscribe to. Yeah. Um, but the same thing goes that like, you know, when the New York Times prints the problem with the performance is the voice itself, it's not a crippling experience because I can I can realize that, well, the person who wrote that is the cabaret writer. So of course he's not gonna like my voice because I'm not a cabaret singer. Right. And I pride myself on authenticity, which is different than than a yeah. cabaret show. And the sure. fact that I wasn't moving around the stage as much makes a lot of sense because I'm a jazz singer and it's not performative. It's authentic. And he uh, has a history of writing reviews that tear people down so that the next review seems like he's the one who built their career. You know, and so there there is a way or, or listen, he just didn't like it. <laughs> right. You know, and that's okay. <laughs> right. Um because at the end of the day, there is a soundbite from that review that, you know, Sarah Gazarek is an adept improviser in New York Times. Like, okay, great. I got something out of it. But it's not the kind of thing where I have to curl up in a ball on, you know, in bed and not emerge for a week. Mm. Um, it's like, okay, we didn't get as good of a soundbite in that article as we could have. Um and that's really, to me, like, that's really it. I think that, I think that it's important to recognize that some things will open doors for you. You know, that like being a 17-time Grammy-nominated, 150-time winner, like that opens doors and it would be great to have that. But it doesn't mean that if you're not nominated or don't win the soloist award that year or are not, you know, the number one best new artist in Jazz Times, that mm. there's not space for you. It just means that it didn't happen that year and keep going. Like, I can't tell you how many times pre-college that I participated in jazz festivals and was devastated that I didn't win the soloist award, but kept going because, yeah. you know, oh, because Beth McNulty of Downey High School, who was the adjudicator, says that it wasn't good enough. Like, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. Right. Moving on. <laughs> so, so all that said, I'm really grateful that John yeah. said that and that I was in a place to hear it because it it is something that I'm that I'm able to move forward and and hold on to and and that you know when Kurt Elling says I don't think that you are showing us who you are in your music and your live performances I'm going to listen to that because I know that Kurt knows me and loves me and understands what I'm trying to do and sees what I am doing mm. and can understand what isn't working you know, and I, yeah. I know that his influences are in alignment with my influences and his value systems are in alignment with my value systems. And, um, you know, it would be devastating if Kurt came to a show and said the problem with the performance was the voice itself, because I know he knows my voice and, and likes my voice and that I like his voice and, you know, our influences are the same and, and he wants what's best for me. And so if he were mm. to say something like that, it would be, I would want to curl up in a ball for sure. sure. You know, but <laughs> yeah. again, some reviewer for the New York Times, like, I'm I'm sorry that it didn't resonate. I would have yeah. loved to have had something published in the New York Times that was glowing, um, but it didn't happen. Yeah. But I'm still going. Right. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> I actually, I mean, on that note, yeah. received uh, a, an email. I, post, I posted this on my Instagram page and Facebook a while, a month or two ago. Um, received an email from a fan after we had performed the music of thirsty ghost at birdland mm -hmm. and it was by all intents and purposes meant to be an incredibly devastating email 
Mm. Essentially, this person was like, I have never felt more disappointed in a show. It was horrendous. Your band was terrible. If you release this music, this is a direct quote. If you release this music, I guarantee it will be a commercial failure. Please do not release this album. Um, is this a person who had like lots of commercial success in the music industry? <laughs> well, he did say something to the effect of, you know, go back to the tried and true standards that we want to hear. Um, and so I could tell um, that he wanted a Diana Krall, Stacey Kent, like ingenue yeah, to yeah. just sing songs about love in a light and unchallenging way. So, of course, me singing Stevie Wonder at the top of my lungs isn't going to feel safe for him. Because it's different and it's honest yeah. and it's not real. Yeah. And and I didn't make that record for him, you know. I sure. made the record for people who needed me to make that record for them and for myself. And yeah. um, so again, you know, God, the hour after I did that show, was it bu a bummer to receive that email? Absolutely. Two days later, did I even think about it? No, not right. at all. And then, you know. A year and a half later, did I publish it on my Instagram page? You bet I did. <laughs> because it's important for artists to recognize that you are going to get feedback from people who, oh, yeah. you know, don't get to tell you what to do, number one, but also who might not be along for the journey. Yeah. And that that's okay. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't go on the journey. Right. And it's, I think as creators, it's important to just acknowledge the fact that what we're doing is not for everyone and that's yeah. okay. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know where the idea that we have to be liked by everyone came from, you know, I understand in terms of like caveman brain that if people don't like you, you will die, you know, that right. like you'll be kicked out of, out of the team or whatever. But, you know, I mean, I think as artists, we put so much weight on ourselves to make sure that everybody loves it. And when one person doesn't, it's like devastating somehow. And it's not yeah. accounting for the thousands of people who do love it. You know, that's so much power to give one person. Um, yeah. And so like, it doesn't bother me that much when a person I don't know is like, I don't like Sarah Gazarek as a human, you know, it's like, well, they don't know me and I don't know them, <laughs> you know? And so it's the same thing of, with music. It's like, well, they just don't like it. Yeah. It's okay. My mom <laughs> likes it. I like it. That's all I need. <laughs> right. That's really awesome. Um, so with your students at USC and that in mind, like what, what is your, you know, as you're teaching them and preparing them to go out in the professional world, like what is your, what's the right word? Not goal, but what do you feel is your mission with them or, or what do you, what do you, what are you really preparing them for? Yeah. Um, you know, I think being a teacher is, is a huge charge these days. Um, and I think for me, a part of it is making sure that I don't do to them what was done to me. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> to share what I've learned and also to help them identify who they are. You know, that's a really, really big goal. Mm. Um, and of course, to prepare them for the world as a musician. Um, so there's a lot. I mean, I, I, my thing is that I, I really try to be as 
flexible as possible with my students and identifying that some of them will not resonate with the value system that I resonate with. Mm-hmm. You know, that I really, really love the concept of improvisation in phrasing, vocal quality, facial expression, diction, sort of like not necessarily melody-based improvisation, but more like vocal and and ex- like emotional improvisation, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's like the thing that gets me excited and always has, you know, that when someone, if I, if I were in college and someone were to say, what did you spend your time working on last night? I would have said like, I, I transcribed Nancy Wilson, Nancy Wilson's facial expressions. Like I didn't even know I was doing it, but I remember watching her and just being like, oh yeah, like when she squints right there, it makes me feel like she doesn't trust him. And that's what that emotion is, right? Or like, mm-hmm. oh wow, that person isn't blinking a lot, which makes me feel like they're very grounded in what they're communicating. Mm-hmm. You know, like those were the things that I was really excited about. And no one gave me permission because the the sort of like checks and balances in in music school, the easiest way to decide whether or not someone is good or bad is based in math. And so to right. say <clears throat> in like a very colonial way, you did achieve or did not achieve this music theory based concept. Therefore, you are not good. It's just something that I don't really subscribe to. Sorry. Um, So for my students, you know, some of them absolutely are incredibly inspired by improvisation and sort of that math-based approach to music. And so we'll spend Mm -hmm. time working on that. Um, Some of them are really, really focused in understanding the instrument. And so it's more of like vocal instructor instead of vocal coach. Some of them are really interested in original composition. And so we'll explore what that means to them. Um, so I, yeah, I just want to empower them and have them feel like they're, they're walking away with their money's worth in terms of the skills that, you know, the technical skills that they should have when they enter the world as a collegiate level musician Mm -hmm. and understanding like how to notate what they're hearing and, you know, how their voice works and what the things are called and, you know, making sure that they understand sort of the more like Western approach to to music but not making cookie cutter artists because that's not art right do you guide them do you give them career guidance as well like for those who want it yeah because some of them don't you know some of them really have no interest in talking about like truly i have there's a one class that i teach there's a unit where they have to create a business plan because we are talking about the industry and they come up with a plan of something that they want to do and then they have to execute the plan and so Mm. a lot of them are like i want to have a thousand more followers on instagram by like a month from now you know and some of them are uh you know want to write a song and release it on spotify and you know Mm -hmm. see it from concept to release um and i had one student who was like i don't want people to be a part of this, you know, and like truly, you know, and, and it was an interesting conversation to have because it's really different from my experience. And I shared what my experience was. I said that, you know, art is not for us. Um, We can create art for us, but ultimately like you are uh, like an influencer of the world, you know, that you have Mm. the power to like change someone's life and perspective based on, and like you, you might not know that the music that you're putting out in the world might save someone. 
Yeah. You know, that like some person in Russia might hear the song and say like, oh, wow, I'm not going to go out and, you know, blow up a building or something. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, ultimately she came back and was like, maybe other people are the ones who are going to save the world. But like, this is literally like, I don't want to, like, I don't want fans. <laughs> I don't want to share my music mm -hmm. publicly. I just want to make music better, you know? And it was like, okay. Let's figure out a different project for you, you know, like what, what could your project be maybe to give yourself deadlines for songwriting and recording your music, but not releasing it. Um, and that was a hard one because it's not, sh her value system is so, so opposite of mine, but that's not my job as a teacher isn't to convert her to my sure. sort of like approach, but instead to empower her to further explore hers. Right. Yeah. Right. But I had to really think outside of the box on that one. That yeah. <laughs> and how has it been teaching over the last 12 months? I'm sure at USC it's shifted just like every other university in terms of like online. Are you guys doing any in-person stuff or is it all online at this point? Yeah, at the moment it's 100% online. USC is in Los Angeles, which is sort of was and has been many times the hub of, of coronavirus yeah. outbreak in the U.S., um, and so, you know, USC also is a private school. It's not state regulated. So we have the opportunity to, or they have the opportunity to make decisions in accordance with recommendations of, and regulations of the state. But when the people push back and say, we want to go back to school or like, you know, open schools, open businesses, USC mm -hmm. can be like, it's not in the best interest of our teachers. So it's not happening. It's not in the yeah. best interest of our students. So it's not happening. Um, so USC is committed, I think even early last semester, committed to being online 100% through the spring and, you know, haven't announced what they're going to do in the fall. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, last year they wanted to, quote unquote, test online learning after spring break, which was March of 2020. And we've just been online since then. And so it was a real challenge and a real hurdle to kind of have to learn how to navigate Zoom and online online learning and a immediate turnaround. <laughs> a lot of other school districts had the opportunity to learn over the summer and then kind of come back and, and work it out um, slowly. Yeah. But USC, um, at every step of the way, also was preparing for like six different options, you know, because the students wanted to come back. And so it was like, okay, well, if the state says we can and we can figure it out, this is, you know, if it's really bad, we'll be online. If it's kind of bad, we'll do da, da da If it's not super bad, we'll do this. If it's fine, we'll do, you know, they had like eight plans mm -hmm. and we're totally able to move forward with each of them. So I'm right. grateful for the diligence of the program, but also glad to be online. It's not easy for anyone. I think yeah. any educator would admit that, you know, and I'm sure you agree that interacting with a computer is just so different. Oh yeah. Um, I think we're all like, for better or for worse, like getting used to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's not ideal. And, and no. you know, with young people who are still making their way socially in the world, there's not a desire to give the energy back that you're giving. You know, and so it is really mm -hmm. challenging when you're in a room with students, you know, you can be like, Randy, what's going on? You know, yeah. but if it's like Zoom room, like everybody, nobody, no student is happy right now. They're all a little bit yeah. depressed and, yeah. you know, you kind of have to give them the benefit of the doubt and. <laughs> yeah. Fair has kennel cough. You That's okay, right. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah. So it is hard. And I think most of my, my friends who teach right now acknowledge that it's, it's really, really challenging to get in front of the computer and sit down for six hours a day and communicate passionately these Mm -hmm. concepts that typically are communicated live and interactively. It can be really hard. Um, But, you know, found a way to make it work. And more than anything, I'm just grateful to have work at this time and work that is in line with something that I feel passionately about. Yeah. Do you have an ensemble that you're working with online? I typically teach a vocal jazz ensemble and... Uh, you know, because it's not my, it's something that I love, but it's not something that I've devoted my life to. Um, the school gave everyone who leads collegiate ensembles, like, you know, collaborative ensembles to either change the format of the class or to not hold the class. And so I changed my class to small combo that focuses on arranging, recording, and songwriting. And so I have a rhythm section and two vocalists and each week we meet and they have each have a project that they're spearheading and we'll do a video thing by the end of the year. And, you know, we're doing our best, but the idea of like recording and mixing and editing video for 18 singers is like (laughs) the opposite of what I want to be doing. (laughs) Right. I hear you. Yeah. Um, With your students, how do you help them? Like, do they all know what excites them? And if they don't, like how do you how do you tease that out of them or how do you help them discover that kernel of excitement the students who don't have a strong artistic sense um i ask a lot of questions you know mm-hmm. like what do you like about that who are you listening to right now why are you listening to them i give them like listening presentations and projects and things to, that they have mm-hmm. to listen to and talk about Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, uh, you know, you do your best to help them kind of like circle what it is they want to do, but not everyone goes to music school because they want to be an artist. Yeah, That's the other thing to help recognize is that some people just want more information regarding the genre, um, so that they can be a better, whatever they end up doing in their life. Some mm-hmm. students will graduate with a jazz studies degree and go on to be music publishers or go on to be managers or booking agents or um, recording engineers or music teachers yeah. <clears throat> or mathematicians. Who knows? Yeah. So in that regard, you know, I think the goal shifts a bit. And I think that for music educators, it's important to identify like this person wants information versus this person wants guidance into becoming the best version of their artistry. Um, So for my students who don't have a strong idea for what they want to do, it's just skill development and understanding of concepts. And so there's, you know, I am happy to assign songs and transcriptions and musical concepts that, that they can and should know. Um, so that's a bit more, I guess that's a bit more generic and recognizing that some yeah. students don't want to be told, some students do want to be told what to do. Yeah. And that that's yeah. okay as well. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a great example of Sarah's dexterity and precision in singing The Sunny Side of the Street. Do it, 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 do it,
just a little bit and talk about life on the road because you've toured quite a bit and you said this does tie in a little bit to the college experience because you said that you learned more in those first months on the road than in the four years you spent in college and I know it's different education so we're talking about different domains of learning but like can you can you talk about that on the road education like what what did you what was the value in that? What What did you learn that was was really vital? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the main difference is that when you're in school, someone is telling you, you need to do this, or you need to learn this, or I feel passionately about this, and so therefore you should feel passionately about this. And when you're on the road, you can watch what's happening around you and see what you want to absorb, you know? Um, and also to see and learn the hard way, like what is not happening and what needs to happen. Um, so I think it's not even that I learned more because they, that there was like this big gap in what I should have been taught that wasn't taught or like sure. that, you know, those, those four months were so informative because the people that I was on the road with were such incredible teachers. It was more just that I was finally in an opportunity where I, I got to witness and see firsthand things that I hadn't been privy to for mm-hmm. good reason, you know? So knowing or seeing how an artist advocates for themselves with their managers or with the, you know, production person at the venue or in regards to how they interact with fans at a CD table and how long to spend talking to a fan and what to do when a fan lingers a bit long or what to do when, um, you know, someone doesn't want your CD, but they want the other artist's CD or what to do when you hear something weird in the monitor and what to ask for and standing mm-hmm. next to an artist and listening to what they're hearing and ha- hearing them say, I want more of this or less of that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, knowing when to show up in the lobby when you have a 7 a.m. call, that that doesn't mean show up at 7. It means show up at 6.50 so that you can be in the car at 7. Um, yeah, there was a yeah. lot that I learned and continue to learn. But I think having been a really young 
artists touring with incredibly professional musicians pushed me to be very professional at a very young age. So one thing that a lot of my friends say is that like I'm one of the more like business-minded or professional artists that they know. And I think a big part of it is that I had to be because I was doing somewhat big gigs with big mm -hmm. artists at a really young age when I when I didn't have necessarily the tools to do that and right. had to figure it out really quickly. Um, and then now have carried that anxiety with me that <laughs> like, I need to do this. I need to do that. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you like being on the road? Is that enjoyable for you? I do. It depends on the people that I'm with, to be completely honest. And I think most artists would agree with this, that sometimes you can be on the road and, and the vibe can get a little uncomfortable because the people that you're with either don't want to be there or aren't easy to get along with or aren't happy. Um, so that matters a lot. And I think most artists would agree. Um, so I do try to choose members that when I'm going on the road, a big deciding factor is like, what's the vibe, you know? And for me, like, do I trust this person? Are they professional? Are they po mostly positive attitude minded? Do they show up on time? Is there going to be any issue with the music? Have they learned it? Will they have learned it ahead of time? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the idea of like being in a different place every night is not, hard for me the idea of existing with very little sleep is not hard for me um i grew up in a uh family where my parents were divorced and so like spending time in a place and not having everything that makes me comfortable is not weird for me mm -hmm. um and i think you kind of have to have that mentality if you're a touring musician the idea that like this pillow was uncomfortable or that shower wasn't as warm as it should have been like it's just like that happens you know, right. or like my flight was can't, like anytime I see somebody who's like pissed that their flight is delayed, I'm just like, what are you going to do, man? Like, there's nothing to do. You can't control it. Like, you got to right. just let it go. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, talk a bit about uh, Scott Brown and Roosevelt High. And I'm curious, like, what were some of the key things that that he gave you and and taught you that that served you so well as you as you moved into being a a, coll a collegiate musician. Mm. Yeah, so Scott Brown is the uh, the, the the music educator at Thor at Roosevelt High School in Seattle, Washington. I almost said Thornton School of Music um, at Roosevelt High School, which is where I went to high school in Seattle, Washington. And he is like internationally recognized as a it top-notch, highly regarded music educator in the world. Mm. And I didn't go to Roosevelt thinking I wanted to pursue jazz because what middle school student knows what jazz is, you know? And I was even the TA of the jazz band and like still wasn't like, oh, I want to go to a school with jazz. Like I just didn't, was not on my radar. Mm. And I remember auditioning for the jazz choir because I just wanted to participate in as many artistic things as possible. And Scott Brown, Mr. Brown, Mr. B, as I, I mean, like I've performed, like he performs with me sometimes when I play in Seattle and I still oh, have a hard awesome. time calling him Scott. It's so weird to me. <laughs> He's like, call me Scott. I'm like, you're Mr. Brown. I can't. Um, he has always been like the, the bands at Roosevelt and the choirs at Roosevelt have never been like, 
University of North Texas, pristine, incredible, mm. uh, like perfect unification of sound ensembles. Mm -hmm. They're like the super soulful, messy uncle of those bands. And so the amount of soul and feeling and expression that Scott is able to get out of his ensembles is otherworldly. I don't know how mm -hmm. he does it. And even I've been in them and I still don't understand it. There's a level of respect that he commands from those kids that's unlike anything I've ever seen. And it's not mm -hmm. through kindness, but it's also not through fear. Right. It's not the whiplash. Approach. Exactly. Like it's not abusive, but he also, like I remember when we went to the Essentially Ellington competition in New York City, <clears throat> we were there um, competing and, and Garfield High School was there with us, which is the, the rival high school. And they always had, it was always head to head with Garfield nationally. They were a tremendous school as well. Mm. Um, and Roosevelt placed in the top three that year and Garfield did not. And that night after Roosevelt had gotten third place, um, the students we were all hanging out because everybody's friends, you know, it was rivalry, yeah. but not really. And so we were all hanging out and they're like, let's go to Brooklyn. And we were like, oh, we don't have time. Scott wants us back at the hotel by midnight. And they were like, what? Who cares? And we were like, yeah, we, uh, ooh, you don't want to make Scott mad. And they were like, see, this is why you guys won because, because the respect that you have for Scott Brown. And I think it's true. You know, it mm. wasn't even that like, no, I would be suspended. It was like, I don't want to disappoint Scott, mm. you know? Yeah. And... So the attention that he demanded, the level of feeling that he demanded, the approach to feel and pocket and swing and tone mm. um, is something that he taught that's very hard to teach. I don't know yeah. that I've ever really been able to teach that to any students or, or ensembles that I've been in, but I think having a jazz musician teach jazz band and jazz choir was crucial. I think most schools across the country have music educators and choral instructors teaching jazz band and jazz choir. And that's the difference yeah. is that Scott is a trombone player and jazz musician at heart. <clears throat> Did he have you guys learn instrumental solos like or transcribe do any transcription? I'm just curious. He did, yeah. There was like when I was there was this kind of golden era in the vocal jazz ensemble in the time that I was there, where there was also another guy that went to jazz school and then decided to become a CPA. But he was like, to this day, one of the best vocal improvisers I've ever heard. <laughs> and decided it wasn't for him. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. um, but he and I, and then two other singers who have gone on to be professional musicians, one of whom is the keyboard player and band member of Guns N' Roses now like she like tours with guns and, and like is in the band like she's in guns and roses that's awesome yeah um and so there was this kind of like golden period where the students like wanted more than scott would give you know like we would go to him and say like we want to transcribe the sax soli of grooving hard can we do it and he'd be like okay weirdos yes do it and then you know we would perform it and it mm -hmm. was Mostly because we all loved jazz because of Scott, but also because they were all such incredible musicians that it could be done, you know. And yeah. um, so I was just along for the ride. At that time, I wasn't like a super jazz nerd, but could sing that stuff and was happy to sing it. And so there was a period where there was like a solo night where people were doing solos. And I think some people had 
written lyrics to some Miles Davis solos and mm. um, like someone had written lyrics to a, a like a solo on Little Darlin that was really famous. And mm-hmm. so, so I think that's really it. It wasn't even that he was like, please write lyrics to this thing. It was more like he had us listening to really sophisticated, but popular instrumental jazz music. Mm-hmm. You know, like I knew, I knew who like Sonny Clark was in college or sorry, in high school, mm-hmm. um, but didn't know who Carmen McRae was, <laughs> you know, and went to college, yeah. like not knowing who Nancy Wilson was, but totally <laughs> knowing like ex- extensive library of Count Basie. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I think it was less that, that he was giving us these assignments and more that we wanted to receive more information and then happened to, I think, I mean, it was 25 years ago or whatever, but um, I don't think he ever was like write lyrics to the solo, but we did know that like Lambert Hendrickson Ross wrote lyrics to solos and that that was something that people could do. Right. Because you're, um, you have a lot of facility as an, as an instrumental with your instrument. Like I hear you sing these lines and it's, um, you know, you also, I I think I would put Kate McGarry in this category as well. Like just the precision of, of the pitch and it sounds, I mean, it could be, it's, it could be a saxophone or it could be a trumpet. It, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's just an, your, your instrument, you're very facile at it. And, to me, that means that you must have done a fair amount of work to be able to sing those kind of lines. Yeah. I mean, thank you. First of all, I appreciate yeah. that. That's very sweet. Um, I, my mom is, is a pretty incredible singer. Like she's not mm. a professional singer. And I grew up in a house where she was singing all the time and harmonizing with me. And and her voice actually is very similar to my singing voice, but not trained. So the idea of like being able to sing in tune was not not like a novel concept to me. Um, (laughs) But also having studied with Tierney Sutton, who like is very, very like accurate in pitch and having like a beautiful tone and consistent tone and accurate tone is like a big priority of hers or was at the time when I was studying with her. Um, So there was a long period of time when I was, and you can kind of hear it in my earlier recordings where the, the idea of like being in tune is like very, like at the front of what I, what I want and what I want to do. And now Mm. I've kind of done my best to move away from that value system of like accuracy and more into honesty, because Mm. I think that sometimes accuracy is important in making sure that you're able to sing the thing that you want to sing because mastery of instrument is, is at the heart of the genre as well. You know, like I don't want to ever feel impeded by my lack of study and lack of preparation in my own instrument. Um, But exploring more colors and more sounds and more approach to tuning and more uh, wide variety of sounds in my instrument has been a goal of mine for at least the last couple of years. Um, and it's hard. Ugh, I have, I study privately with a vocalist named Theo Blackman. Oh yeah. Um, heard that name. Yeah. He's my, he's my vocal teacher and we just work on technique and that's it. Like just warm ups and talking about things. Um, surrounding the voice and it kicks my butt every single week. Every week I'm like, what am I doing? I'm horrible. This is not, not, I'm not a good singer. 
This isn't what I want to do because he's having me do exercises that like actually kick my butt. Right. So all that to say, thank you. And the work yeah. continues. <laughs> Can you share what, uh, any of those exercises might look like those, those warm up, those vocal exercises? Yeah. So, um, as an example, yeah, as an example, uh, you know, like there's the thing that I, that I struggle with as a singer of contemporary music is, is independence of register. So vocal, like contemporary singers tend to sing everything in the mix, which is like a blend of head and chest, um, mm -hmm. because it's very pretty. Uh, but that means that my isolated chest voice and my isolated head voice are not as strong as they could be. And that the sounds that I use are a bit more confined because I only have certain things available to me. <clears throat> so um, I haven't warmed up today, so it might That's be kind right. of funky, but like isolated <laughs> chest, like if I were to sing really pretty, eyes ah, mixed, right? And it's like, this is kind of my sound and understanding that I can hold my sound or I can send my sound out and like the difference between those two. But isolated head, ah, all the way down there is like very hard. Right, and then isolate, oh, oh, yeah. isolated chest, and that's still I can even feel as a bit of mix in it because I haven't warmed mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Um, but so there's a lot of exercises and kind of development of strength in, in the individual registers. The idea of blend of registers is like I could do that in my sleep because that's what <laughs> we do. Um, the idea of singing loud and fast comes very naturally to me. It's really mm. easy for me to do some things like you know. Um, <laughs> But singing soft and consistently with like long tone, like the music that we do in Sage, yeah, is really hard for me. Wow, it's super hard for me. It kicks wow. my butt in a good way. It's like exploring yeah. uncharted territory that um, doesn't feel natural, but mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's not natural. Yeah. It's just not my go-to. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing that. That was that was a great. I could totally hear all of those. That oh, was good. Really awesome. Oh, good. <laughs> um, what you you've you live in L.A., but you performed in New York City quite a bit. Like, how would you describe the difference in the music scenes? I mean, for a long time, when I was when I was growing up in the the eighties. And went Marcel, not when uh, Branford Marcellus played in the Tonight Show in Los Angeles, and he couldn't wait to get out of LA because he was like, "This is not real jazz or whatever." <laughs> you know, um, that's funny. and I think that's changed, you know, yeah. a lot. But it, do you still do you feel like there's a big difference in the scenes between Los Angeles and New York? Totally. Yeah, I think there's a real big difference. I think every city, major city, has some kind of jazz scene. Like, I'm sure you'd also agree that, like, Ashland has a jazz scene. You yes. Know? And there are jazz musicians who live there, and, like, there's a sound there that's different than anywhere else in yeah. the world. So Chicago has a really particular jazz scene. Obviously, yeah. New Orleans does. Obviously, um, New York is a little bit different than Philadelphia, which is different than Los Angeles, which is different than Seattle, which is different than Houston, Austin. Right, yeah. <clears throat> so yes is the short answer. I think that what people typically associate as the difference between New York and Los Angeles is like, you know, what was happening when jazz was sort of like the popular music at the time and then started to decline. So when we think about what was happening simultaneously between like Chet Baker 
in Los Angeles and Stan Getz versus like Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis in New York, those were really different sounds Mm -hmm. because there wasn't access to, unless you were traveling with those people to the sounds that were happening Mm -hmm. or buying the record. Right. And so the simplification of bebop that people hear in like post bop or cool jazz, I think is what people associate with like Los Angeles jazz. And then in the seventies and eighties, when jazz started to kind of decline, a lot of jazz musicians, because jazz is freaking hard. For those that don't know, it's like tremendously hard. And jazz musicians are, you know, very, very well trained in sight reading and and um, sort of like facility on their instrument. And so most of the jazz musicians in town uh, are also the top call studio musicians in town. Right. And so that was that's probably what Branford experienced when he lived in Los Angeles, is that a lot of the jazz musicians in town sort of had to like make money during the day and then go out to the jazz clubs at night. But in, in, inevitably the music that you're playing during the day is going to affect who you are and what you do. And so I think in the seventies and eighties, the jazz scene in Los Angeles was like very fusion based, um, which for somebody like Branford Marsalis, who at the time was doing music that was very straight ahead and rooted mm-hmm. in the straight ahead jazz tradition, that that might feel like a real big disconnect. I think that today the narrative that New York is the hub of jazz isn't wrong because there are more jazz clubs in New York and there are more jazz musicians in New York. There are more schools that teach people how to perform jazz music in New York. But I think that what happens musically isn't that different anywhere Mm -hmm. these days because we do have you know, the ability to create content and watch immediately and absorb immediately. And people are listening to and talking about and inspired by similar music. Um, And Los Angeles now has, is home to what used to be called the Monk Institute and now is the Herbie Hancock Institute, which is, uh, I think, widely accepted as sort of like the main, like, collegiate, program for young musicians to study jazz. And I think that there are similar programs at Berkeley and NEC and Juilliard. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but the Hancock Institute kind of is the one and all of those students have the option because it's in Los Angeles of continuing to live here and work with the community that they've cultivated or to move somewhere else. And some of them move back to the country where they originally were. Some of them move to New York. Some of them stay in LA So I think because Los Angeles has this like family of young people that have to be here for an entire year and musicians who have to come and teach them that what's happening in in Los Angeles is pretty serious. And there's been a lot of articles and specials that have kind of been released of of what's happening in Los Angeles because it's, Mm. in my opinion, probably the most exciting movement in jazz um, in Los Angeles that we've ever had. That's awesome. And the idea that like the only good jazz ha- in the U- at the U.S. happens in New York is like a narrative, to be completely honest, that seems to be upheld only by people who live in New York these days. <laughs> <laughs> and and you yeah. know I always push myself to go to New York when possible for like a week or two at a time every year just to know what's happening like front sure. front and center. Yeah. Um, but I don't know a lot of jazz musicians in New York who do that in LA that come to yeah. LA to be like, what's happening in LA? So like, my thing is like, how, how do you know? Do you know? <laughs> I don't know if you know. <laughs> it is, it's a pretty tremendous scene out here. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard St. Louis is also 
like there's a pretty pretty big scene down there too. I would believe it. Just um, anecdotally, yeah. I haven't been there myself, but uh, um, well, St. Louis also. I don't know for those that know, they also have pretty incredible patronage to the arts, um, and always have been that way of of not just like let's save musicians, but also like let's get the word out about music. And so the way that they sort of fund and and share music in St. Louis is unlike anything that I have experienced in the rest of the country. Right. It's really great. Go St. Louis. Yeah. Um, and you talk a little bit about the writing process for you when you're songwriting and do you, I'm curious if you do like lyrics first or melody or baseline or what, what is it? What does songwriting look like when you sit down with your manuscript paper? Yeah. I think it's different for every artist. There's a song, there's a book called Songwriters on Songwriting that's like this thick that has little anecdotes from every song, every major songwriter. And every single passage is like wildly different from the next and the way that they create and how they approach that songwriting. Um, and my experience <coughs> is that people tend to feel comfortable creating in the way in which they first created, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if there's truth to that. I know for me that there is truth to that. And most of the artists that I've encountered, there's truth to that. That like I got my start creating this way and that's how I feel most comfortable creating. Um, so in college, I would write lyrics to songs that didn't have lyrics and sometimes write lyrics to solos. And I've mm -hmm. never felt super confident in my harmonic understanding or melodic ability for whatever reason. I don't think mm -hmm. it's real. I think it's like perceived, but that's just where yeah. it's at. Um, and so lyric writing has always been a, has been somewhat easy for me and joyful for me. And mm. so when I would write with collaborators on previous albums, we would sit down and write together and, you know, I would kind of second guess what was happening and want to go back later and kind of fine tune and finish it because I want it to be indicative of something real and sometimes you have to sit with it. Mm. Um, instead of sometimes, you know, you'd write and someone would be like, it's, it's done. And it's like, wait, really? After an hour? Really? Is that possible? Um, so, uh, yeah. So I think, um, then having done that, I did the project with some German musicians where the songs had already been written. And then I wrote lyrics to those and I, there was about 12 or 13 songs that I had to write lyrics to. And having done that, that's where I really feel like I found my approach to songwriting mm. and lyric writing that it is easiest for me to have someone give me a composition and then I write lyrics to it. It's like a Sudoku or a crossword puzzle where you like have mm -hmm. this many syllables and that's the arc of the line and that's the long tone. So what kind of vowel is the pretty vowel for that one? And just sort of by having done it, you know, I, I love words and, and also I'm a big fan of poetry. And so kind of combinations of words and combination of like nuggets of ideas is always something that I'm collecting. Mm. Um. So for Blossom and Bee, there were two songs that I co-wrote on that record, Blossom and Bee with Larry Goldings. He yeah. had written that song previously. Like I told him I just wanted a medium swing tune. And he was like, okay, and sent me that. And I was like, okay, and wrote lyrics to it. And I knew that I had an idea of what I wanted it to be. And just kind of like, I can't remember. I heard someone say something about like autumn 
autumn turned to spring. And I was like, what if you're the spring and I'm the autumn and we're the opposite, you know, and the bee is the blossom. And then it was just like turned into a thing where it was like two opposites mm -hmm. love each other. Yeah. And Fly Away Birdie was a song that Josh Nelson and I wrote sitting down together that was like, we wanted to get away from the instructions of music industry people and into like our own artistry. And so it was like mm -hmm. fly away birdie from this experience. And so we talked about what we wanted it to be about and then wrote something. And, and that one's kind of fun because it does feel probably to the listener, like it's applicable to a couple different possible dynamics of yeah, where yeah. one person should transcend and leave. Um, but with thirsty ghost, that was the first time. So, so similarly with easy love and gaslight district, those two songs I wrote Larry because I love his songwriting and said, here are two songs that I want to write. One is this concept because of something that I've gone through. And this is the mood that I'm looking for. And, you know, just kind of gave mm. him quite a bit of directive, but knew that the song would be called Gaslight District. Mm -hmm. And then he came back with something that was really beautiful. Like it almost was like a Randy Newman ballad, um, but it didn't have the like searching lost kind of fire that we were looking for. So Stu Mindeman arranged that for the band. Mm -hmm. and change it into something totally different, but, you know, the power of arranging. Yeah. But with Distant Storm, which is the title track of the record, kind of, because Thirsty Ghost yeah. is a lyric from that tune, um, that was a Brad Meldow song that already existed, so I wrote lyrics to it. But the poem in the middle that Kurt Elling sings, I wrote the poem without having melody mm -hmm. or, con like, confinement, which was totally new to me and totally terrifying because there wasn't something that basically said like you have to fit it in here it was like you can just write it's like oh my god is this good i don't know if this is good i don't know so i just wrote and there's not a whole lot of rhyme scheme there's like kind of internal rhymes here and there yeah. but it's really just imagery and yeah. and meant to be it's meant to be kurt like kurt talking to me and being like go do what you're supposed to do in the world mm. um and so writing for his voice saying what he had said to me but in a more poetic way um was hard it was really hard it was very different for me but it was really hard and good i loved it it was yeah. way faster than actually writing to a melody i was like maybe i should do this more often um and then with my group sage um it's totally different because it's a collaborative experience and so there's four of us writing together but one of the songs is that we do is a bad plus tune called As This Moment Slips Away, which is a lyricless vocal, like, yeah, just like we're just singing scat syllables. Right. Yeah. But in the middle, there's a spoken word piece that I wrote. And similarly, also feels a bit scary because there's no melody. It's literate and it's just talking, you know, so it's truly just poetry, mm. <clears throat> which was again, new territory and terrifying and came very quickly. And again, it's hard for me to, to trust that something fast actually means good and it's okay yeah. for it to be okay. It's okay for it to be fast. Yeah. But my tendency used to be like when I wrote lyrics to the Duke Ellington song, Single Petal of a Rose, it was like a three week experience with like research and subliminal parallels and internal rhyme schemes. And it was, it's a very smart, very sophisticated lyric. Mm. And I love that lyric, but it's not, it was not easy. That was like giving mm. birth to <laughs> a concept. Whereas the, you know, the, as this moment slips away spoken word, I thought about it for at least a week, you know, and came to this idea that I wanted to write like who, what, where, when, why. Mm. 
mm-hmm. of social responsibility. And so that's what that spoken word piece speaks about. But it really was like a vessel, like something just kind of came to me came beyond to the like, wh- how should we show up for social justice and and race equality? Yeah. <clears throat> and the concept of as this moment slips away, like I wanted to write that spoken word piece because we're moving into a space that feels like it could be a bit more unified than it felt a year ago. Mm. Um, and so as the moment of a year ago slips away, what do we need to hold on to? Yeah. So sitting with the concept and then kind of letting your body guide you into a space where there's a bit of inspiration while you consider it and think about it and ruminate with it. Um, I think that's probably the, the through line process of everything that I've ever written is like, this is the, the process is like, N- like vacuuming your house for an hour while you're thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> like that image. Here's Sarah with her latest endeavor, the female vocal group Sage, and this is their Grammy-nominated Desert Song. I bet when you see the ocean You're drawn to the strength inside the waves But if you get caught within the ocean The undertow will let you lose your way I bet when you reach the ocean About the relationship between uh, the arra- you and the arranger, or the artist and the arranger, that seems like a really vital in all your albums. Like the arrangements are um, um, amazing, impeccable. I would say even, and you've you've uh, you've chosen really amazing people to collaborate with, arranger wise, and just talk about a little bit about that relationship and how that works. Yeah. Well, for my first few albums, I, you know, collaborated on the arrangements with the band. So we would meet together and kind of conceptualize and come up with these arrangements together. And it wasn't like a person sitting down and being like, and now play this. (laughs) Um, And I know that it is typical for some artists to like speak with a producer and then they come up with a concept of a record and then they pick the arranger and then they pay the arranger to arrange the songs. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's always been a bit more organic than that. Um, and when I was touring with the same band that I was recording with and arranging with, the benefit of that is that there was like a cohesive sound and everyone felt really engaged. The challenge with that is that there was such a communal experience that it was hard to hear my own voice in 
the collaborative unit. Mm. And I'm very grateful for the experiences of the previous iterations of collaborators that I've had. I think that, you know, we all are indebted to anyone and everyone that we've collaborated with because to some degree it has helped shape who we are in this moment. Um, For Thirsty Ghost, it was really important to me to work with people who specialize in what it is that I've asked them to do. So that like the saxophone player is like the best saxophone player that I know. And I love and trust their voice. Mm. But the piano player, same thing. The bassist, same thing. Drummer, same thing. Mix engineer, same thing. Vocal arranger, same thing. Arranger, arranger, same thing. So when I was first exploring coming up with new material, I didn't have a an arranger in mind. I didn't have a concept in mind. All I knew was that the music that I was performing didn't feel like my life. And so I started listening to songs that spoke to things that I was dealing with and, and themes mm. that were, that needed to be healed in my experience. Yeah. And also looked at people whose arranging I loved and trusted. And so it was the first time there are a handful of songs on Thirsty Ghost that I co-arranged and sat down with someone and we like arranged it together. But there are also a handful of songs that I said to someone, I chose this song for these reasons. These are the colors that I would love to have in this arrangement. Here's the tempo, here's the key, go. And that's what you hear on Jolene, which is the Grammy-nominated arrangement that Jeff Keiser wrote, where I said, this song needs fire, this song needs anger, it needs muscle, and it needs to be faster. It needs to be slower than the original, but the subdivision needs to feel faster. Mm. Um, and that's what he came up with. And it's, I mean, it's worthy of of the it, Grammy uh, nomination because it's such yeah. a heavy, deep arrangement. But it's because Jeff Keezer is a pianist, but also truly identifies as an arranger and loves arranging and bri- and lives and breathes for it. And so I wanted to have the experience of working with someone that I didn't feel indebted to and that I could feel like I could trust just as an arranger, but I could, I had to be responsible for communicating the emotion and the inspiration behind the musical choices on the page and then could focus on my artistic contribution to what had been composed for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Jeff is like one in four other people that were that I collaborated with or hired to do some arranging. Um, and the through line of those arrangements is, I guess, like my adult experiences yeah. and my voice in telling, you know, these people who I hired to communicate specific concepts. Um, but that's the one thing that's really different is that there were people in my life that I wanted to trust mm. to bring something to life without necessarily having to be in the room with them while they came up with well, the, the ideas. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. It was hard, but it was worth I bet. it. <laughs> so Sage, I want to talk about that uh ensemble because that's a new creative endeavor. And um so you guys got together in Palm Springs. <laughs> was that like a year ago? It was more than a year ago. It was last okay. May. Not last May, but the May before. So May of 2019. 2019? Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, essentially like, you know, the jazz world is small. I'm here because <laughs> you know Kate McGarry and and she's an incredible vocalist, but good friend of mine. And yeah. it's just, 
it's not a, it's not a large community. And so, yeah. um, you know, even when someone does something that isn't in alignment with what you do, you know of them. And so I had gone up to the Pacific Northwest to, to participate in a jazz festival led by Groove for Thought, which was a great, um, fairly prolific jazz vocal ensemble at the time. And the lead singer soprano, Amanda Taylor, was the one who arranged a bunch of my songs for their group for me to perform with them. Mm-hmm. Insane. Like, truly <laughs> next level, beautiful, expressive, um, incredible writing. Mm. And hu- incredible human, incredible instrument. And afterwards, I was like, I can't believe I'm saying this. Do you want to be in a vocal ensemble together? <laughs> Because that's just not something I ever imagined I would want, let alone ask for. Yeah. And it was so impulsive. And she was like, oh, my God, absolutely. (laughs) And she and I both know Erin Bentledge, who similarly is a tremendous composer, arranger. She is the one who arranged and sang the background vocals on Thirsty Ghost. Mm. And I had known and loved Erin and was a very good friend of Erin's for a while. So Erin was the second person that we asked. And then Johnny Kendrick, tremendous vocalist up in the Pacific Northwest, also a very good friend of mine. I asked her if she might want to. And and when we went down to Palm Springs, we had never been in the same space together. Mm-hmm. I think we had all been in the same space with one another, but all four of us had never been in the same space together. And the idea was to get together and just do arranging and writing and learn from each other. But we really just like floated around in the pool and drank margaritas and cooked food and just learned about each other and fell in love. And shortly thereafter had found out that our application to participate in the gen conference in last January had been accepted. And so that was our first gig that we remotely had to prepare for. And so Aaron lives in Los Angeles, Jeanne and Amanda live in the Pacific Northwest. And so we remotely had to arrange and learn an entire set of music and then join our like join forces in in New Orleans last year for the Gen Conference. And that was our first performance. Mm. And the first time that we'd ever sung that material together was in front of 1,400 jazz educators and like peers, you know. Wow. Uh, so it was terrifying and incredible. And that launched Sage and we had a, you know, a short tour booked in January and February of about seven cities and shows. And then the lockdown happened. But the crazy thing is that we had shortly before we had, we had three shows in Los Angeles and just happened to have chosen to do a photo shoot and have chosen to record these, this short set of music at the blue whale in Los Angeles and have those edited together. Um, And then the pandemic hit. And so we had these like press photos and these like really incredible videos and had been arranging remotely, but also had done some shows. So we knew when we're starting to circle around like what our, what our sound was and what we wanted to communicate as artists and what the purpose of the group was. And so the format of how we create music was already in place. Like we already were collaborating remotely and meeting yeah. via FaceTime. You know, Zoom was like, we had a transition to Zoom, but like pre- like previously we had just been talking via FaceTime. Yeah. And so so the Sage train, like it hasn't changed. We've, in, yeah. in quarantine, 
you know, submitted one of those songs from that Blue Whale recording session, which is a live version of our original composition, Desert Song, that got the Grammy nomination. Mm-hmm. And then have just arranged and recorded probably seven songs in the last year and nice. released those to our Patreon followers um, and shared a couple snips here and there. And a few of them we've turned into music videos on YouTube and, yeah. you know, so our like recording and arranging chops and video editing chops and all of that has like just, it's crazy. It's really yeah. funny to listen to the demo recordings that we did for the Gen Conference and what we do like our most recent arrangement that we just arranged and recorded for ourselves is this medley of Blackbird and um, a contemporary song called Solid Ground. And it sounds like we rehearsed it together, you know, like because we both we all just kind of know what the sound is and what needs to happen and wow. how to do it. So we have the fortunate honor of being headliners for the Lionel Hampton Jazz Festival this year. And that's going to be... A week from today, February 26th, my birthday. Um, and we're going to be in person performing virtually for the festival. So they're flying us out to Moscow, Idaho right. to perform together. And then they'll broadcast it virtually. But yeah, so so we're all going to be together and, you know, rehearsing and, and COVID testing up the Wahoo. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and doing it as safely as we can. But yeah. um but it is interesting to like have created the sound through the pandemic, but now get to have a gig where we, you know, probably are all almost certainly not gonna make it through without tears to yeah. some degree. <laughs> yeah. The harmonies, I mean, there's something about it's almost primal, I feel like harmony when two voices two or more voices sing together and like it i grew up in a family there's four of us and we used to sing and there was just something like there's something heart it touches your heart in a way i don't know what it is (laughs) just the human voices singing together and the the four of you it's it's pretty magical especially i found never you mind was Mm -hmm. um very um very poignant and and such a tribute to the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's been going on. It's uh, yeah, gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, that one's an original composition of our of Jeanne's Jeanne Kendrick, and she was so gracious to allow Aaron and I to arrange that for our ensemble. And you know, it is it is a song that Jeanne wrote that speaks that was written for her children and her husband and and uh as a reminder for them to just like walk and knowing that you know no one owns them and and to 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 trust that they came from a long lineage of warriors and you know she speaks so beautifully about the song and and for Aaron and Amanda and I to stand next to her and support her as she communicates the song as a is a true honor. Mm. Um, and it almost doesn't even feel like a sage song. It feels more like we are sort of holding space for her while she's, she communicates that song. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask one, one quick thing and then we'll wrap up. Sure. <laughs> how did you meet, how did you meet Kurt Elling? 
Oh, well, you know, the jazz community, like I said, is a small one. Um, and I remember we both performed at a few different jazz festivals together. There was one years ago uh, in Port Townsend, jazz in Port Townsend, Port Townsend Jazz Festival. Jazz Festival, yeah. Um, is that what it's called? I think jazz, it's jazz Port, Port Townsend, jazz at Port Townsend. Anyway, yeah. he was headlining, I was headlining, and I remember, you know, he's been a longtime favorite jazz singer of mine, and and my group was performing, and I saw him out of the corner of my eye and was just like, "What the hell is my <laughs> life?" and and terrified, but also just like so happy, and by no means was it a great show. I did not. I don't recall it being like this transcendent experience where I walked away thinking like, I crushed it for Kurt. I think I was actually like, I succumbed to the fear because <laughs> I was probably like 22 or something. I was yeah. very young. And then four or five years later, we were both performing at the Java Jazz Festival in Jakarta, Indonesia, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it was. And I was at the pool and he was at the pool. And I remember being like, hi. And he was like, Sarah. And I was like, oh my God, he knows me. And then a few years later, I posted something on Facebook and he was my Facebook friend or something. And he sent me a message because of what I had posted that was like, you're doing great things, sister, or something. And then mm. it was just on. Like at that point, I think shortly thereafter, he asked me to sing backgrounds in a duet on one of his projects, P Passion World. Mm -hmm. And then anytime he, I would come to New York, I would see him and his family and he would come to LA. And, you know, so so yeah. it's moved from, it started as like distant colleagues to a mentorship relationship and now has moved into like friendship but it will always feel like a mentorship experience i know that i can text him and he'll write me back and i can call him and he'll call me back mm -hmm. but anytime i see a notification from kurt it's a good day mm. yeah that's awesome yeah. that's so cool to hear stories when you meet your heroes and mm -hmm. And they um, are what you want them to be. <laughs> right. He is. He really, really is. Yeah. yeah he's he saved a, my life musically. He's an awesome, yeah. awesome person. Um, where are you finding inspiration these days? Honestly, the inspiration that I find is in Sage. Like, that's it. You know, they're, they're beautiful, safe, empowered, talented, capable, and sophisticated women. And we meet once a week and talk about what needs to happen. And then we go make it happen. And so feeling accountable to three people who you love and look up to and um, are inspired by is uh, incredibly motivating. I think that without having that group and that project, um, I probably, like many artists, would have a really hard time motivating myself to create art for myself. Mm because it's just such a challenging time to be an artist. Yeah. But I think it's a joyful, rewarding experience to create for Sage. So to have these sisters that you get to work with is really, really, really fun. And it's a gift for sure. So I would say just Sage yeah. <laughs> at the moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, what what's, what's on your listening device or what are you listening to these days? Uh, you know, honestly, the work that we do in Sage is pretty time consuming. There's mm -hmm. a lot of arranging and a lot of recording that has to happen and demo recording and then re-recording and then video editing. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I'm listening to is like learning 
stuff for Sage mm-hmm. um, in the time that I have to actually listen to music. Um, but I also, yeah, like there are live streams from artists who I love that I love to listen to. I've really been enjoying Kate McGarry's performances in, in quarantine and John Pizzarelli and the shows that Kurt has been doing. Mm. I love vocal gumbo. Lauren Kinnan and Janice Siegel have a great series that they're doing. Um, but in terms of new music, I don't know that I've been listening to like new music musicians as much as just like people who are putting music out who I love, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I've always been a fan of like Yubba and Emily King um, and always, and like Jasmine Sullivan it's an like incredible R&B soul singer. Like what mm. the, I don't know where she came from, but really love wow. what she's doing. Love um, Moonchild and Amber Navrin. Really incredible neo-soul group. Um, and then, you know, I mean, like I, there, there, it, it gets to the point where you're just listening to your friends because you love your friends and you love their music. So like Gerald Clayton and Ambrose Zach and Musseri and Chico Pinero and Becca mm. Stevens and Gretchen Parlato. Like there's just so many friends that are putting music out that it's, you know, hard to keep track, but inspiring <laughs> to pay attention to what is being shared with the world for sure. Nice. Yeah. If, um, if you had a daughter, let's say you had a 19 year old daughter <laughs> and she wanted to, she was going to start a career as a vocal jazz musician. What would, what would you say to her? What, 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 what would you want to impart upon her? I would probably want her to feel confident and comfortable like really giving herself to it, you know, that like it's okay to throw yourself into it. It's okay to be enthralled and utterly nerdy, you know, <laughs> and and to seek and find people who love it as well because there are a community of people who love it. And to to know that it's okay to not love what everybody else loves, that like someone could be like, this is the best Miles Davis record ever, and you could be like, eh, not for me. <laughs> Or like, this is the best jazz vocalist ever. And like, oh, wow, I'm glad you love that. I don't, it's not for me. And like, it's okay, you know, or yeah. or that it is okay on the other side to be like, I love this, da, 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 that everybody else hates. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also to like, trust that her talent and work ethic and vision artistically is all that she needs. And that, there isn't any savior or person outside of herself and her inner circle that will have the answer. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a danger that a lot of young female artists fall privy to or fall prey to that, you know, a somewhat well-connected or talented or, or highly visible jazz musician, music industry professional will come along and say like, I've got the answer, baby. Um, <laughs> and for better or for worse, because it is the entertainment industry, we'll take advantage of the power dynamic. I think most of my female friends have experienced that to some degree, which is mm-hmm. unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so that would be my, one of my main concerns is like making sure that 
she knows that that is a game that she doesn't have to play. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, Sarah, thank you so very much for spending this time with me. I All of our time is super precious and I'm really grateful chose to spend this time with me and my audience. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. It's my honor. It was a great time chatting with you about something that I'm definitely geeky about. So <laughs> grateful for the chance. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this week's show with our guest, Sarah Gazarek. You can find Sarah on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at at Sarah Gazarek. And that's S-A-R-A-G-A-Z-A-R-E-K, at Sarah Gazarek. You can also visit her website at sarahgazarek.com, where you can uh, support her with through her Patreon account. And if you're interested in taking lessons, you can sign up for uh, jazz lessons or vocal lessons there as well. Thanks again. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you back here really soon.